1: Welcome to the Talent Equation Podcast. If you are passionate about helping young people to unleash their potential and want to find ways to do that better, then you've come to the right place. The Talent Equation Podcast seeks to answer the important questions facing parents, coaches, and talent developers as they try to help young people become the best they can be. This is a series of unscripted, unpolished conversations between people at the razor's edge of the talent community who are prepared to share their knowledge, experiences, and challenges in an effort to help others get better faster. Listen, reflect, and don't forget to join the discussion at thetalentequation.co.uk. Enjoy the show.
2: Welcome back to The Talent Equation. Um, today, I've got uh, Dan Cottrell on the uh, on the show. Dan, welcome to The Talent Equation.
3: Uh, thanks, Stu. Thanks for inviting me.
2: It's an, absolute, it's an absolute, pleasure to have you here on this uh, on this delightful uh, Saturday morning. Um, just, um, just, just, just wanting to really, I suppose, um, uh, start the ball rolling by. Um, I wonder if you could kind of just tell everybody a bit about yourself and your journey and how you've arrived to where we are and and some of the conversations that we've been having uh, uh, via Twitter and in different spaces.
3: Oh, thanks, Stu. I mean, I uh, grew up in the West Country, and my favourite sport was cricket. I think you you enjoy your cricket as well and uh, then uh, as I got older I got a bit better at rugby and uh, eventually uh, university sort of broke through a bit with rugby and then went into school teaching after becoming an accountant. That's uh, often a journey that some people make and when I was a schoolmaster I loved the rugby, became a director of rugby at a big private school in Surrey and then uh, when I was doing that I started up a Magazine. Uh, this was about two thousand and three, and in two thousand and three, if people can remember back that far, Google was just about to coming online itself and becoming more popular. And the guys I was doing the magazine with discovered Google themselves, and suddenly they were instead of it becoming a hobby, it could become a full time job. So I stopped teaching and started to write about uh, coaching rugby. And the great thing about that has been. Obviously, talking and uh, writing about rugby, but actually being exposed to an enormous number of coaches from a vast array of backgrounds, and I can tell you that they—they're exciting every time you talk to them. Even if they're saying something different to the last one, they bring a sort of energy. And as as people who listen to this podcast will know, anyone who's in coaching loves to discuss it, loves to talk around different points and share. And one of the great things I found is the number of people are willing to share. So how have I got to where we are today? Well, I think Twitter's been a great way of sharing bites of information and sharing files and Stu and lots of people around You, you guys have been doing that. And I've been following it and listening and jumping in sometimes. Sometimes just putting my head above the parapet, but very happy when uh, you guys say something and everyone fires in, and then I think, oh well, I'll come on, I'll come in and bat for them and see what uh, see what I can add. Uh, sometimes asking questions, sometimes putting in my my thoughts, and so it's really uh, we had a, we have a, a bit of a conversation about the difference between drills and games. Not the difference. I'm going to be very careful not to say the difference between. Uh, There are some little crossovers, perhaps, uh, but mainly in coaching parts of games which have some form of safety element or some form of danger. So inevitably, rugby will be uh, probably at the forefront, but I'm sure that it will cover across a number of sports. And I'm expecting you, Stu, just to jump in and say, well, that would be appropriate if we were coaching some other Sport. I know a little bit about football, by the way. However, I am a Bristol Rovers supporter, so I don't know where that then puts me up at the top in terms of understanding football or near the bottom. So there I am. That's my
2: journey so far. So um, I mean, you know, brilliant. I mean, you know, right at the uh, at the forefront of the, I suppose the, you know, the information revolution, and you know, uh, you've been contributing to the to the kind of online debate and, and been a, a source of information and a content provider helping you know other other coaches uh to you know within within rugby to be able to improve I mean I I'm I often feel I mean we'll, we'll obviously get onto the safety stuff definitely in the conversation but I often feel quite quite jealous um so you know I I before really you know before Google came out, I started coaching you know 20 odd years ago and I feel like at least 10 of those years, if not more, were, were kind of what I describe as the wilderness years because I got what I got on my education. But after that, you know, there's not much out there. You know, you're kind of digging around for bits of information here and there. But information now is so freely available. You've got great sources of information such as, uh, you know, Rugby Coach Weekly. There's, you know, the podcasting world has exploded. Blogging has become more more prevalent. And even academics are making their their stuff more accessible. So you know the, the the space is very rich. If you're getting you know started in coaching, there's there's a, a wide variety you know variety of information out there for you to be able to to di- digest and absorb. So I do feel kind of a little bit like that. You know when a young coach comes to me and says, "Oh, you know what 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 should I uh, you know what should I read? What should I look for?" I almost think to myself, <laughs> you know, "How how can you not? How can you possibly even ask that question when there's so much information available?"
3: Yes. Yeah. Though the one of the things that I think is important for anyone who is, you know, in our positions, you maybe more than me, is to help create what is out there. Because, as you say, there was an enormous gap, and hence why Rugby Coach Weekly and some of the things we did around that was able to really take off. Uh, and uh, like you and I daren't ask your age, but I. I'm nearly 50 now. So when I first started coaching, when I was about 25, so that's 25 years ago, there was absolutely nothing out there. There was about three or four books, which became very dog-eared. And then there would be some coaching manual uh, would pop up from South Africa. And you think, this is amazing. And what are they doing there? Yet your your sources of information were so anecdotal uh, that it was very difficult. I I mean, I was very lucky uh, in my short career of playing quite good rugby that I was exposed to some of the best coaching or best coaches that there were out there. Um, for instance, there's a guy out there called Keith Lyons, who uh, I don't think many people will know of, who was before his time. And he taught me at university. Uh, so that was fantastic. Um, I was very lucky that there's another guy called Kevin Bowering, who I'm sure you know. I do, uh, yeah. He, was the, uh, he helped me get into teaching. So just, just to have conversations with him was amazing. Uh, and then uh, for others in rugby, we'll know the likes of Brian Ashton, uh, Dave Aldred, who has uh, written a very good book on that, the pressure principle. So I had short spells with each all of these coaches. So when I went into coaching, I had some of those things behind me. Uh, and the scary thing is that what sort of coach would I have been then if I knew what I know now I mean I know people say that quite a lot and it's part of the journey yet where we are it is an enormous amount of information to as opposed to the little information and frankly some of the rubbish coaching that I did back in the the mid-90s
2: yeah I mean I I think I think you touched on something that's very important there which is um I I also count myself as very fortunate to uh, have been able to uh, meet and um, have conversations with several, uh, you know, excellent coaches. And I think coaches learning from other coaches is definitely one of uh, the most powerful ways in which um, in which you can do that. I mean, in, in many ways. That's what this podcast exists to do, you know, is to enable uh, coaches to hear from other coaches talking about their lived experiences. Because for me, that's certainly been some of the richest learning I've had. I mean, I've been, as you mentioned, Kevin. I mean, I'm very fortunate to work alongside Kevin, more or less, you know, uh, for for three and a half years, and. You know, it, it every time you have a meeting with Kevin, there's a knowledge bomb going to be dropped at some point. So <laughs> I, I was, it was fantastic for me because, what, you know, whilst I was getting paid for it in a, in a professional capacity, I was also able to, you know, gain some Excellent knowledge. Rick Shuttleworth's another one. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've heard. You know, I've spent time with with like Dave Allred, as you mentioned, and that, But but of course, I've had the benefit of working across a number of different sports contexts as well. So for me, I'm very fortunate that I've had that kind of experience. It's been really valuable. But I think you're right. I think this is also where. Uh, having these kinds of conversations, um, you know, and 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 for me as well, it's what's important as well is is there's a lot of information out there, but actually turning that information into practice can be very very difficult for a lot of people. So, actually hearing from people who are actively doing that and some of the challenges they face, I think, can make such a difference to people.
3: I think it's also important that all a lot of things you say there make me think of about three or four different things. One thing is that I remember Kevin Bowering saying, oh, I've got this great book on coaching, which you can take Shakespeare quotes and put them into uh, coaching situations. And he was dropping a few of those at a, uh, a chat. And I was thinking, wow, I mean, that's just amazing. Uh, I wish, I don't even know where that book is. What is that book? Does it really exist? Well, it does exist because he kept talking about it. <laughs> Yet yeah, those sorts of coaches use, uh, um, also, Lynn Kidman as well um, is very, was very influential in that. But the, the thing I was going to develop on what you just said is listening to coaches in real situations and realizing how dynamic coaching is. And it's very much in the moment, which is um, a phrase often used by coaches. How, I think Rick Shuckleworth uses it quite a lot, that you can come with a great idea yet the idea needs to adapt for the moment mm. for the players. And uh, how many times have we turned up with a great plan for a session? And, well, in the old days, ripped it up and gone away disappointed, and hopefully now change, change around. Uh, yes. Uh, so, I mean, I, what I would like to know from probably from you is, where is the balance between listening to coaches and reading? Because there is so much reading we could do.
2: Um, I, I, I think it's a mix, isn't it? Um, I think there's a, there's a mix of, I mean, I think one of the potential downsides, I suppose, of, of living in this information age is there is such a bewildering array of information. It's hard to know which sources to attend to, isn't it? Mm. Um, and I suppose as a result of that, uh, it can be easy, easily, you know, you can easily sort of fall into the trap of going into things that, that may or may not be of benefit. So I suppose, I suppose the one thing I I suppose that I would encourage all coaches to do is have a degree of healthy Mm scepticism and also to uh, layer a filter onto everything. So, for example, um, well, firstly, be very open minded with kind of healthy scepticism. So uh, and but also, you know, be prepared to experiment with, um, you know, things to see how how they work for you. Now, that also means you don't if it doesn't work immediately, you don't just throw it out. But you know, be prepared to uh, use a concept and kind of turn it into or make it work in in your way, in your context, because it's very easy for me to pontificate about, uh, you know, kind of a a games based approach or an ecological dynamics approach and this, that and the other. But the context is everything, isn't it? You know, I often challenge, you know, challenge academics for saying it depends, you know, challenge them because they're sitting on the fence. But they're right in the sense that, it's all about the context, you know, in, in in a school context, the environmental pressures and things like that are such that sometimes uh, a coach is has to act in a certain way um, in a different context. They have, uh, you know, they can work in, in another way. So actually, I'm coming around to answering your question. I think the information source probably isn't necessarily the important thing. Um, I think it's the um, it's the ability to translate the information source into Action into practice. Um, I actually think that for me, anyway, it depends on what I mean. For me, engagement with an individual like this, a conversation, I often find uh, more valuable because I can make sense of something more readily. Um, Reading um, certain things sometimes can be a bit more challenging because you can't uh, question the person who's done the writing and you can misinterpret maybe what they were saying. So That's just personally the way I kind of engage.
3: Yeah, well, that's because you're an auditory learner, not a... um, a, I'm being facetious,
2: of course. I know. I was going to say, I was going to (laughs) say, Dr. Dick B would be all over this.
3: (laughs) I did. uh, I I coached at a school uh, in the last couple of weeks. And so I've coached at about four or five schools in the last couple of weeks. So they won't know which one it is. And uh, I've got in front of me a fantastic... Piece of paper which sets out what they want from the child and how they're going to deliver it. And it is a brilliant piece of paper, but almost right in dead center, they have uh, something on learning styles. And it just, it just everywhere. And also, the school was full of the growth set, uh, growth mindset posters. Mm -hmm. And I've got a, I feel, if you've got a growth mindset, you don't necessarily believe in the growth mindset. Because it, if you you turn it round, it, you've got to keep thinking. Well, is it really what it is? So I think that also needs to be challenged. We need to challenge ourselves. So one of the things I've started to do in recent times is, like you, probably say, I like that idea. Where is somebody who says it's not quite the right, the right idea? And it's, you often find somewhere on the internet somebody saying okay, just be careful, think twice. Which then makes you think, what am I actually going to do in front of anybody when you get out there? Because you just don't know. And I suppose turning turning everything around to where I, we sort of came to set up this podcast is my question over games, which I'm a big fan of, um, and accidentally did a lot of much uh, back in the 1990s, tried to play games rather than, do drills though. really i will it was the games were because i couldn't think of another drill <laughs> um as opposed to now where i try and gamify everything as much as i can and um, that's um that's probably where i'm slightly worried that i've gone down this route and i'm very much a believer in it yet i'm using this healthy skepticism to think am i actually doing it right am i making a mistake here am i stepping off the path uh to use a metaphor which i think uh, is used often you've got to you've got to know your path to be able to step off it mm. uh am i am i actually really stepping off the path into something which is the wrong the wrong way because it is about safety and it is the big news story at the moment in rugby and no doubt across all sports with concussion
2: mm. Mm. So, the, the, so the, the the issue that you're exploring, really, I suppose, um, is is the games-based approach. Uh, con- what's the word? Is the games-based approach appropriate when it comes to scenarios where there's a potential for danger, and therefore, do we need to be use more, say, instructional and explicit approaches? when there's a potential for danger in order to mitigate the risk of injury? Is that pretty much the question you're asking?
3: Well, that's the question I'm asking because my anecdotal experience suggests that games is the way. And so the story that I I tell is that, well, first of all, uh, anyone who's listening who knows...
4: Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six-slides, eight-neighborhood, zero-compromise vacation. The ultimate never-done-that-can't-wait-to-do-it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. How do you feel great on vacation? Like, really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com.
3: ...whose me and watch me my, through my, my ruby career will remember me as a non-tackler. I mean, I did have to tackle in the end and I learned to tackle because if you play at a certain level, you've got to tackle. I wasn't a great tackler and it took a long time for me to become a tackler. So I don't, I don't look at my own tackling journey, but I'd look at my children's and we talked a bit earlier before the podcast about our our children are our little experiments and both my children learned to tackle uh, playing rugby but in a, there's not this sort of environment that you would expect. Uh, I used to go down to watch Swansea play rugby at St. Helens, the famous St. Helens ground of Gary Sober's fame where he hit six sixes. Mm. And anyone who's been there will know that the rugby pitch, which is one of the best, probably might even be in the, one of the best in the world because it's so flat and wide, uh, has has a whole cricket pitch around it. Mm. So you watch the game and all the kids aged probably from five to 14 go and play rugby at the side of the pitch, right next to the concrete stand with the metal stanchions, right next to all the farm equipment, which looks after the pitches and the scrum machine. Complete, They're completely uncovered. There's no, there's no padding or anything like that. So these kids play full contact rugby against each other. And if the kid doesn't want to play, they don't play. If the kids want to play, they've got a tackle. So that's how my kids learned how to tackle. Um, so we then go through a whole range of ways of teaching players to tackle, like uh, from step by step. Yet my kids learnt better by just playing those knock-around games. So anecdotally, it seems right, is there a is there basis to it?
2: Uh, You mean scientific basis?
3: Yes. Please tell me. (laughs) Justify it to me so I can use it.
2: Well, as you know, um, this podcast and my my Twitter feed is currently in the middle of uh, a... What's the word? (laughs) Well, an ongoing battle between two sides of of an academic... uh, discussion, debate, I suppose, which is uh, a a side of the academic community that is aligned to what you might call, uh, uh, you know, a a more explicit approach and directive and instructional kind of approach to... um, Athlete development and the perspective that where that comes from, where that stems from, as I understand the science, you know, by, by, you know, by, by no means, uh, by no means am I going to put myself up there with some of some of the experts. But as I understand the, you know, reading, reading it, as I understand that the, the science, the view is that the emergent approach, the um, the learning, the kind of, you know, the ecological approach where players adapt movements according to uh, environmental constraints. Um, there are certain scenarios where certain techniques or certain certain movement patterns will not necessarily emerge by themselves. And without a more explicit teaching approach, you are essentially potentially leaving certain important movements out. And, and the best example of that is in the kind of what you might call the physical literacy space. So People often say that children learn to walk on their own. They learn to they learn to, um, you know, run on their own. They're never kind of taught. But there are some researchers who will say, yes, but they learn to walk badly. They learn to run badly and actually in order to optimize their movement patterns and therefore help them learn and develop more effectively within a physical activity context. Actually, we need some implicit teaching and some instruction in the same way we would teach children maths. We would teach children to read. It's not necessarily something that you you naturally do. Um, so can so, I can uh, just jump in uh, there on,
3: uh, on that? Then. So I
2: understand that that idea. Yeah.
3: And I, I use the walking. We learn to walk without someone instructing us. And then I can see why they say that physically, physical literacy won't improve. In some circumstances, yet isn't it the case that if the child is motivated enough, they will mimic the others who are more successful and use that to say, well, what can I do differently in order to become more successful at what I do? Rather than them having to go to PE and uh, jump over hurdles um, because they're told to, they go to PE and watch Watch, uh, watch their mate jump over hurdle, and watch them again, and think, actually, I can do that, and I want to do it because I want to be like them.
2: Yeah. Um, so again, I think obviously I'm playing a little bit devil's advocate here, but the the, the rationale there, or you know, the argument there, is uh, maybe, maybe they will. However, they might also not. They might not be uh, aware depending on obviously age and stuff, but they not, might not be aware enough of their movement limitations. So therefore they'll continue to repeat a potentially detrimental movement pattern over and over and over again until it becomes ingrained in habit. And then it becomes very, very difficult to um, uh, to sort of change that particular movement pattern. And so what what a lot of the people use as an example is, and, and, I, and I, I can kind of understand where they're coming from, which is, is that if you actually look now at um quite a lot of even now even with all the knowledge we have about strength and conditioning there is a strength and conditioning community working at, uh, at elite you know high level academy level 16 18 this age basically fixing movement problems that that and their argument is is we spend all this time fixing these movement problems when in actual fact with an earlier intervention um we wouldn't have to do that we wouldn't have to spend all this very very you know it's very time consuming very costly Whereas a relatively limited intervention earlier on might might make all the difference to that individual it, it means it could stop them from getting injured, it could stop it could give them better athletic potency, all these sorts of things. So that's the argument that's used here.
0: Well,
3: that being devil's advocate on the way way back then, so these are coaches looking after sixteen to eighteen year olds who will then go on to do what? Well, some of them will go on to become Lionel Messi, and some of them will be go on to play Saturday afternoon football at the local um local club yeah. and th- why why do we need to intervene so early it just for me um PE lessons I love PE yeah. uh, because I love sport it was just that's the way I am and yet I know some of my friends hated PE and there were probably good reasons because some of the PE lessons were horrendous yeah. uh, and and uh yeah the best pe lessons were the ones where we played played a game so there's pe in school and there's there are there are schemes to improve physical literacy i like the schemes uh, for instance uh, chance to shine have gone in with cricket where they you can see some fantastic videos of these kids playing something which eventually in about 5 or 6 years time might resemble cricket but at the moment they're running around having fun dropping the ball Uh, that for me is much better than trying to get somebody to throw a ball in a certain way uh, bend their knees in a certain way so they can eventually be able to lift weights or do whatever they're supposed to do in the future I just sense that we got to recapture I think I'm probably speaking to someone who probably thinks this as well. I don't know. You might disagree. We've got to recapture that opportunity for children to really have a laugh, be puffed out at the end of it, doing something which resembles some of the sports. I mean, I'm not a fan of organized sport at six or seven or eight. And I know I speak to coaches who are coaching eight-year-olds and they do a great job. Why are they having organized sports? I, and why are they having matches? matches at eight i mean it's just it then they're trying to train them in a certain way why don't just come along run around fall over get wet have a hamburger or sausage roll at the end of the day and go home
2: yeah i i mean as you know i mean (laughs) uh, if you spend any time listening to any of the stuff i put out you know i totally agree i think i think the bit here that's interesting though is um the i suppose the um theoretical and methodological position uh, where we're coming from here. So for me, the idea that um, if we help children to fall in love with movement, and when I say movement, I'm thinking in, every, in the broadest sense. I'm not just talking about, you know, literally like, you know, gymnastic movement. Um, I'm talking about all forms of physical movement, you know, whether that's within a game context or, you know, climbing a tree, you know, those sorts of movement. I mean, my children the other day, by the way, We were playing a game in the park after school um, where my daughter would grab my phone and was using the um, stopwatch feature on my phone. And they were her and my son and two other uh, two other boys were timing each other at how fast they could get across the monkey bars. But they had to touch every monkey bar. And I just sat there watching this happening. I was sort of sat on the seesaw, just watching it all happening, thinking this is brilliant. This is I've done nothing here. They've created this game themselves. I think the only thing I did was say that I actually added in that you've got to touch every bar because one of the kids, like obviously the older kids could swing across three and they had an advantage. So I just changed it a bit to make it a bit more even. That was the only intervention that I had. But watching them find different ways of doing it and come across different, you know, kind of find different, they would try in different hand positions to see if they could go quicker backwards and all these sorts of things. And it was brilliant. It was like proper, what I tweeted the other day, it was an exploratorium for them. They were finding different ways. Now, for me, that is how I see the development of physical literacy. You know, those children were absorbed in a physical problem. And I thought it was amazing. Um I don't subscribe to the idea that we should get a group of children in a kind of line and they should do hopping and they should do, you know, bounding and they should do uh, lunging and they should, you know, do all these different movements or, you know, or in, in a very kind of prescribed and explicit way that would work from an education standpoint. It would work from a we, we have seen something happen in the context, but. I don't feel like that's genuinely going to allow children to explore and absorb and find different ways of doing things. And, and as a result, and I'll get to the end of this um, as a result, I feel that we're actually potentially putting a lot of children off physical activity in our attempts to help them become physically literate. And it's almost self-defeating.
3: Yeah. And what, what there, what I've, you've got there is something which I've been suggesting to a number of coaches, Uh, on the courses I do and one or two have done it and they've come back to me and fed back on how it works is something which I call free time Uh, a concept I I picked up from a long time ago when I was helping out on a cricket course and it was a four five day cricket course and at the end of the course uh, as the kids were going home we were asking them what do you enjoy most and most of them said well the best bit was free time now we we sat down afterwards and said Oh, well, that's a bit disappointing. The free time, after all the things that we'd done, we'd done loads of games with them and had lots of fun. The guy who'd led it was very energetic. And then we realized what were they doing in free time? What were they doing uh, in that 45 minutes to an hour when they were having their lunch? What do you think they were doing on a cricket course?
2: Uh, I imagine they probably were playing, there was probably. Two people batting, one person bowling, and then loads of them fielding and all that sort of stuff. That was probably the game they were playing, I imagine.
3: Yeah, they were playing. They were off playing their own games of cricket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not anyone that we'd organised. No. Now, some of them weren't. Some of them were just having a chat. Some of them were standing around in a circle talking with each other. Mm. So the fact that they had that chance and given that equipment – so I said to uh, some coaches said, to about two years ago now uh, – why don't you try out this idea of free time? So right in the middle of your session, it's not a reward. It is going to happen. You know it's going to happen. After about 40 minutes, you know you're going to have five minutes of free time in the middle of the session. At that five minutes, you say you're not allowed to leave this area. You can use any of the equipment which is around and we will stand at the side. So obviously if anyone runs off or um, there's, there is any potential danger, we can step in, and step back and watch. So, I asked the coaches, "What do you think's going to happen?" And initially, they said, "Oh, yeah, they'll go off and have a game of rugby or something." I said, "No, I don't think that will happen. I think what will happen is this: all of them will kick. Yeah. Then some of them will just have a chat. Some will sit down. Some will have some water. Some might uh, find a football and play football. Yet." over time some of them will start to play a little bit of game it just gives them that chance to do something which is not adult led now just to add to that one is that about two years ago again two years ago uh, i was doing a some filming for um a, a rugby site with clive woodward and uh, we got there early with all the cameras and everything, and because it was Clive Woodward was doing it, every parent brought their child there well over an hour before the start so if, if you top tip, if you want kids to turn up on time, get a World Cup winning coach to come down for the session uh, so there were all these kids waiting around to be coached by Clive Woodward. What were they doing? They were playing a full on game of rugby. These were under nines, under tens, lay, jump, hitting, not hitting each other, but tackling each other using full tackling. Now, if we had that in our own train session, we would have done a full warm-up. We would have checked every single one had got their gum shields in. If you were a particularly good coach, you would check the studs. You make sure they've got their hats on. And off they went. And they just played rugby. So as you said there with that sort of exploratorium, exploratarium, uh, there must be times within what we do, in the times we do, when the players can explore if they want to explore. And if they don't, then they don't have to. And we shouldn't worry if they don't, because some will want to and some won't. Which, again, brings me back to a point which we were just talking about, these players go into the strength and conditioning coaches. They're, at the, they're close to the top of their sport. And the strength and conditioning coaches are tearing their hair out because, well, quite a lot of strength and conditioning coaches. They're very short hair. So what hair they've got left, they're tearing it out because these players haven't been properly, probably, properly looked after. But if they were properly looked after when they were eight or nine, how about the 95% of other kids? Who those sorts of movement patterns don't matter to they just want to enjoy
2: yeah and um so there's a there's a number of things here i think so you, yeah sorry i gave about eight threads there in one <laughs> one blast well no but i mean it's it's i mean it's this is great this is why i love these sorts of conversations there's so many doors i can go down but um and i'm very i want to go down them all but uh, let me just sort of just just picking up on this point you made about um uh you know free time I mean I, I listen I 100% agree um I did you did something very similar within the talent academy that I, I was leading for uh, for England hockey where we would have a period of time that we called it a free swim I don't know why we called it a free swim but we did and,
3: um, <laughs> like that, free
2: swim, yeah. yeah you could just do you know, sort of do go go and do kind of what you like um I mean the only slight the only slight it wasn't entirely free in that context because it was a learning environment Um, in the sense that we, we did want them to 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 explore something that was important to them, um, but uh, they could do exactly what they wanted to. And if they wanted us to help and to guide, we could, but we were there in a consultative capacity alone. We, we didn't go and impose ourselves. Mm. But what was really interesting about that was um, they didn't know what to do. They're so used to being told what to do. They didn't know what to do. And the first few weeks of it was... You know, quite interesting that, you know, genuinely, they, they would just, some of them would just chat and this, thing, and that was fine. We were happy to do that. They got got more used to it as they went through. So there's an element of that with young children. Well, not young children. These were 16, 17-year-olds, but younger ones. The other point you, know, you want to make about uh, my mission in my coaching, and, I, uh, and also I think what I'm trying to do in trying to convey a message to people is, I think all coaching should feel as much like free time as possible. Because, and this is the skill, I think, of of the in, ecological or the environmentally driven approach, is you can create an, a really, really great problem for children to solve. Um, and I call them, um, you know, I've called them perceptual puzzles in the past. Um, and you can create a problem that, like that example I used earlier with the, the you know, the kind of monkey bar game, that children will be completely absorbed in. I couldn't get them to come home to have their dinner. Um and they'll be learning you don't have to be explicit about that that you can see it right in front of your eyes Them trying different solutions you can see them uh you know working out different ways and that's like very real very live learning happening right there now i could just as easily couldn't i have said to all of those children right well if you hold your hands like this and if you move your legs like this and this that and the other you'll be able to do it a lot faster and they would have all probably done, followed my instruction, but I doubt whether they would have remembered that from the next time. So for me, from this learning perspective, I think this idea of I all I did was throw in one thing: you've got to touch every single rung on the monkey bars. That was the only thing I added. Now to them, that was free play. I, I was just standing there watching, you know, kind of trying to be semi disinterested so they didn't think that I was, you know, watching with too much intent. But I was, I was absorbed in watching what they were doing. And I, and I, so for me, that's, I think, how all coaching should feel. The kids should almost feel as if you haven't coached them. Now, that's a challenge in itself. <laughs> because
3: the right, parents, Well, I call that uh, Je- Jedi coaching. Jedi coaching, but, love it. Yeah, the uh, the way that you sort of, um, you persuade them to do something which they didn't realise they were supposed to be doing. And we we do it all the time in our own teaching um, by saying certain things or doing certain things. And then they, they will shut up like... You're, if you're silent for a little bit of time, sometimes people become silent around you. For instance, or um, the, the the or it's it's like nudges in in sports. If you if you get them to do something, they actually then start to display a different behaviour, which is the constraints in the game. So just going going back, I know we're on a uh, off on another a thread here. So one of the things, uh, just picking up a, a one of the great threads in your. Uh, when you talk to Nick Levitt, yeah. uh, is that how you pronounce it? it? Is, yeah. uh, in his podcast, was how kids create a game and then play a game. Yeah. My uh, I, and I think that's great when they do that. Yet sometimes it happens that they will create a game which is completely unfair. Mm. I don't think they often do change the sides around as much as we hope. That's my perception. I'd love to see the research on it. And I'm, I'm only questioning it because I think that they, they will, kids will bully. Uh, They will, uh, they will taunt each other. Uh, There are some fantastic stories. There's a brilliant story uh, last week, which was very moving about that boy who brought the Syrian boy into their group. And it was, it, it was lovely. Yet I, I don't see children doing that that often. They, they shy away from being so bold. They much prefer to stay with their friends. So when you pick sides, you know what it's like. If you were the, the last person to be picked, it would be, you'd be absolutely distraught mm. that you were, Oh no, we've got to have Dan in our team. <laughs> that would be how, how awful to be at that night. I experienced that in various guises over the years. So, it's interesting that you said that you did intervene with one thing and i think that's really our role as coaches is to is to make it feel like free time and our intervention just makes it even better yeah. you're you're adding the uh, and afterwards you've enjoyed it so much you can have lemonade and ice cream yeah which I think for me of course is a great reward for others is they prefer beer and
2: pie. <laughs> I think you're right in the sense that I think children are, are as capable of being cruel to each other as they are as being kind. I think what's interesting, though, about that for me is um, sometimes I think this driver around um, or children's behaviour may or may not be uh, driven by a reflection of adult norms. And I'm it's interesting I think when children play uh, or whenever I've, I've sort of watched children play I think I often see those sorts of behaviors kind of peak and trough as and, and this is the bit I think where I think you're exactly right about this by the way um that I mean I'm with you on this I think organized sport we should it should happen an awful lot later um and interestingly enough Ian Renshaw um who I just spoke to the other day and he'll be on he'll be on the podcast the one before this. Um, Ian Renshaw said the same thing. He thinks we we should stop organised sport because we're not we kids aren't getting the opportunity to do this exploratory game, their own game, the side of the pitch type of game, you know. Um, and um, anyway, the point I was trying to make is that um, I think the challenge that we're facing with organised sport is that it 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 invites um, certain adult involvement becomes far too. Um, prevalent within the the child sporting uh, context so we we don't have uh you know what john Cottey talks about as being you know deliberate play we don't have that we have formal competition and that obviously invites uh, adult behaviors that that can be you know less uh, more or less positive but those interventions from adults as well i think then also cause some behavioral challenges with young with with kids mm-hmm. so what what i what you'd find is that um if it was left to the kids to sort themselves out, there's obviously going to be tension, and there's probably going to be, you know, the odd strop because such and such isn't doing it fairly, and he won't play by the rules, and we've all done the taking the cricket back home thing, haven't we? And I was very guilty of that as a child. Mostly, though, I think that's driven by a desire to have a good game that's fair. It's usually when it's unfair that these these challenges come about. And I, um, so I think. For me, I think the, the thing about this is, I think kids need to go through that. They need to have that opportunity to have that discussion with each other. Some great books on this and have the conflict and manage the conflict and try and resolve the conflict without adults getting in the way. And I, I'm bad at this. You know, you, two kids have an argument, and immediately two adults get in the way and try and work it out amongst themselves. Then the adults have the argument while the kids go off and play. And it's like, <laughs> what's happened to the world? <laughs>
3: Yeah, that's right. And then they get told, "Well, you're right, you're wrong," and "Oh yes, he said, she said," uh, that that sort of thing. So go, go going back to that uh, that idea then, and uh, the physical literacy. So let us say on the monkey bars, the one of the movements is quite clearly, and I don't have much knowledge of monkey bar movement, is quite clearly incorrect, and the the, the child keeps doing it maybe they don't keep doing it because of the free play free swim idea that they they mimic but they keep doing it do you intervene or do you step back
2: so um first and foremost i think we probably need to have a concept of what of, of this this idea of what correct is mm-hmm. so there's it, it's correct biomechanically um you know i mean i suppose the point is is that it's i try and not talk about correct as opposed to there are perhaps things that are more efficient against the objective versus less efficient so for example if the objective changed to how long can you hang on the multi-monkey bars what they're, how they're holding the monkey bars for example might um might you know be might be perfectly relevant but because their the goal was remember so there's two constraints i suppose here is touch every rung and do it within a time limit or do it as fast as you can. They were all just trying. To okay, well, go on. Sorry, sorry.
3: I was going to say then, just to just to take that one. When I say correct, then, and I, th- I remember you said it, and it's that uh, that idea of uh, being uh, more efficient yeah. is then. I will take that one back then. Uh, safe. So they're doing something which might be un- unsafe, yeah. dangerous.
2: So they're the, the, they're doing it in a certain way that means they probably might fall off the monkey bars and really hurt themselves. Yeah. So I like trying to. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So do you intervene? Well, I think in the context of safety, where if you, as an adult, a responsible adult, can see that there's a chance of a child really hurting themselves, obviously it is. You'd be negligent if you didn't intervene, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. The point, I suppose, is um, is to, and and again, it, it comes back to it comes back to risk risk assessment, doesn't it? So it's about um, what is. What? How severe is the risk, um, and what are the potential? You know, what are the potential consequences of that? So let's take um, the rugby context because this is what we're talking about, isn't it? Um, mm. And the intervention. So the answer is. So the answer to the question is: Do you intervene? Yes. The que- the, the second question there, though, the, the, that that is begged there is how. So could you intervene with an instruction? Yes. Mm. Or could you intervene with an explicit drill? Yes. But could you, exp- could you intervene in a different way? And I, So I want to come back to this point you made at the top about whether games are appropriate or not. And, and the starting point here, the kind of premise that or the hypothesis that you posed was, if we allow children more free play time, or, um, okay, maybe it's guided. So we say, you know, we, we have a tackling game. So it's, it feels like free play, but it's a game about tackling. You know, kids wrestle a lot and all that sort of stuff. Is that going to enable them to tackle more safely or less safely than if we give them some sort of you know, kind of very explicit, instructional, drill based, drill based approach. Now, I don't don't think there is any research on this, but you probably did. I imagine. Well, you've been coaching rugby a lot longer than I have, but I did my rugby coaching course five or six years ago, and it was quite an explicit approach to teaching tackling. Um, you know, in the safety course that all coaches have to do, rugby ready. Quite mm-hmm. an explicit approach to, and quite a linear drill-based approach to how to learn to tackle now simply since- can you just
3: explain to me because um, i think i understand what what do you mean by explicit approach uh
2: instructional you know so it's you, you know so it's very much teaching the children the technique to tackle where to put their head there's an approach where you know it's done on the knees then it's you know and, and you know roll to the ground and it's so the children are learning how to fall safely and the uh, the the tackler is learning w- how to tackle safely and effectively, you know, pulling tight to the to the body and things like that. It's very much a taught process. Now, that's the intervention that is recommended currently from a, you know, kind of IRB safety standpoint. It's kind of a, I think it's a global course, the rugby ready course. I would be interested in looking at some research, and I'd, I'm going to talk to um, Ross Fisher on this podcast soon because he's doing quite a lot of work in uh, research into rugby injury. He's got some very interesting findings, actually, around collisions. Um, and the interesting thing, uh, well, and I'm going to ask him this question, which is if there is any research out there that looks at injury uh, rates since that rugby-ready intervention came into being whenever it did, versus prior my suspicion it's purely a complete theory right now is that since that intervention came in injury rates have, uh, have have not decreased so the the intervention isn't working I've got a suspicion injury rates have increased now I know there's a whole range of variables the game's become more serious it's become faster this that and the other and all those sorts of things what I'm saying is, is that this way of teaching coaches to teach safety in the tackle, I'm just using the tackle as an example, I don't think is, is having an effect that it's designed to have. So then I come back to, well, what could? I think what you described could. Giving children opportunities to tackle each other and have fun because it's a fun activity. You know, you, you didn't like tackling particularly, but a lot of kids do and the game involves tackling so therefore why don't we give them lots of opportunities to tackle now how do we intervene if they're doing it dangerously well it's different isn't it then because we if there's a problem like you know they they get into a dangerous scenario then we can intervene based on the problem we've seen as opposed to kind of giving them this idea of a controlled technique that's designed to mitigate against the the danger because the problem is in the game they get themselves injured because they they try and make a tackle in a position that they've never seen before and they get it wrong. Mm. So that's my theory on this.
3: Well, I think there's a danger here that we come away uh, just saying, uh, I agree with you, I agree with you, I agree <laughs> with you. And, of course, I do agree with you uh, a, a lot. And one of the things I suppose in a sort of – we've not scripted what we're saying, um, me asking the question about unsafe – you sort of came up with the answer what I was looking for, which was uh, the first thing is how to intervene, which is fascinating for me. It's uh, it's a question that uh, I've been there. I've got an opportunity to a uh, part of Connected Coaches to ask questions to Eddie Jones, and hopefully this question will be part of it. Is that um, how and when do you intervene? Um, and I think a lot of people look to Eddie, and I, quite rightly, as a, as a coach who's who's making the right sort of waves in coaching. So at what stage do you intervene? But another question, which comes out of what we're just saying, and if we've got a chance, I'd like to talk about my thoughts on how I'd introduce tackling, is do you do that explicit safety uh, technique point before or during? So there's your children uh, going off to do tackling training or a tackling game, And during, or they're on their monkey bars, and uh, if they fall off the monkey bars because they've done something unsafe um, and hurt themselves, you could be told off for saying, well, you should have told them before that that is unsafe. So I suppose what Rugby Ready does is tries to cover off the coach so that if, should a child become injured during the, game at least they can tick off the box saying well i did say that that was unsafe beforehand and i did give them one or two ways of doing it correctly yet my my contention is is that tackling like a number of these dangerous activities is they're dangerous because they're so dynamic nobody wants to get their head in the wrong place so you're taught where the best place to put your head is yet you're it it's things change so quickly in rugby. The ball carrier is doing his very best to get out of the way of the tackler. Uh, If you do it on your knees, they've got to run into a very small space for you to do a perfect tackle. Yet in the game of rugby, they'll be moving around left, right, and running at you fast, slow. So I think that the best way to learn is to give the the tackler such a, a key nudge that it means that in the end they will find a safe way to do it. It's this Jedi coaching way. And my, my nudge is that they've just got to get their ear tight to the shorts. That's the only thing which then uh, means that there's a tackle in the game.
2: And you could design a game, so, couldn't you, that um, involved, for example, it would almost be like a variation of wrestling, but the, the, the objective is to get your arms wrapped around somebody's legs and your ear tight to the shorts. And that could be the
3: starting yeah. point. Yeah. Ex- yes, and I've uh, been thinking more about it that uh, you play oh, in small areas where they don't have much chance for a run-up. I mean, I do it with walking rugby. And the most people who play walking rugby think it's ridiculous. Yet when they play this walking rugby with this tackle uh, idea that they've got to get their ear in, there's enough space for them to move and pass. And because the player's got to get their ear in close... It actually gives a lot of the good the good techniques that you need to tackle. Because to get your ear in, you've got to have your eyes open. Because if you close your eyes, you'll never get your ear in tight. Where your head goes, your shoulder goes. In order to get your head close, you have to use good foot movement. And if the ball carrier sneakily tries to beat you with a sidestep, because you've got your eyes open and you want to get your ear in close, you change. And that... Those sorts of games, or just sort of very, very gentle, rough-and-tumble games, as you suggest, then with you perhaps intervening like you did with your free time with the monkey bars. Okay, I really enjoying this game. We might just say that if you do this, it's a, it's a turnover. Okay, just play. That, the kids then just learn. I, I look at my, uh, my experimental team, which is the team I took through uh, at Mumble's, And we went right through from under sixes on the beach through to under 16s. And we did very little defensive organization. We tried it a few times, yet the players through play worked out their own defensive system. Now, I'd like to think that I meant to do that from the start with the coaches I was working with. It was purely accidental. So I'm thinking now, maybe that's the way I should
2: coach coach them forward yeah and it goes back to rick rick shuttleworth's point around adapting to the problems that you know so in the same way that we want the children to be able to adapt to a problem that they're trying to solve in the game we as coaches are adapting to what those children are learning and what they need from us um and so often i think when we do you know technique-led approaches um we're giving children movement solutions that they may not have to use (laughs) or they may have to use in such a dynamic way that the way they've learned that movement just doesn't really apply and so your point about dynamics is really important hence the conception you know to, to get a bit theoretical the idea of ecological dynamics is the idea of skill as opposed to technique skill being um uh, you know, being learned in a dynamic environment. So, for me, if, if it's about safety and we know that the dynamics of safety, then we're just talking about tackling, the dynamics of tackling is what causes most injuries, then learning in a modified dynamic environment, uh, learning that particular uh, skill. Um, it's it's essential from a safety perspective, and I, I agree with you entirely as well. I, you know, we're violently agreeing with each other. Um, uh, where uh, I think the idea of teaching this is is a um, it's a box-ticking exercise. We have covered safety. It's to it's to give the sense of. The perception of sa- we take safety seriously here in rugby. Parents, don't you? You know, we keep your children coming to us. We take safety seriously. We're doing this thing called tackling safety, so your kids will be okay. And then they walk off crying five five minutes later, um, because something dynamic happened in a game, and all of a sudden they've injured themselves. So my view is, uh, I, and I think it's very important, um, not just from a safety perspective, but from a, a an enjoyment perspective that this dynamic approach to learning movement skills becomes central to the way children's experience of sport uh, takes place. And the reason for that is, you know, in all other walks of life and, you know, my children, you know, as all, as all children do, you know, are quite into um, video games and stuff that they can, you know, screen time. And, and they, in that context, it's very dynamic. It's all about problem solving and they're absorbed in it and if our sport doesn't give them that opportunity for their exploration then i think we we look like a pale comparison
3: well i that I, this is uh this is a thread completely different i expect but i i think that uh video games teach us a lot about how kids want to learn they there's a very old saying for those people who've lived in a different sort of life uh but a, a good game is a quick game. And if the kids, if you spend a lot of time explaining the, the rules and the laws of the game, then they're not that interested and they find it complicated. Yet they will open up or start up a video game and they won't read the instructions. They'll go straight in. And as they're playing, they will discover solutions. And if they can't discover solutions, they may go back to the instructions or the help. Or they'll go onto YouTube and they'll find, they'll find something which tells them how to solve that problem. And the best video games have enough danger. And I'm old enough to remember when Doom came out, and I can remember getting to the point where I got to the end of the level and came up against the the monster. I think there's a, probably a technical term for it. And uh, I, I mean, my heart was beating uh, horrendously, and I was 28, 29. I mean, that is um, that's a fantastic video game experience but the key for me and this is the key for all sports and this is again going back to an earlier thread that we were talking about about organized sports is the best thing about sport is there's always next week or if you're at school there's always next break time so you win at first break you play the same game at second break you play the same game after school and you might have won the first one lost the next two but there's always tomorrow and that is absolutely key for these kids, because they'll come back if there's um if there's another chance. Uh there's enough there's enough in the game to make it that they're disappointed they've lost. Uh yet there's enough to come back. And that's just like a video game. That uh there's enough jeopardy
2: to make it exciting when you win. And I think, yeah, you're right, and that, that's what makes it immersive. That's what makes it um exciting, like you say, it gives you the thrill. Uh, and it's why we you know i think why all of us are participating because we want to want to generate you know generate that 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 challenge point that's going to give us the and i think you're exactly right methodologically i think for me if a, if a, if you need if a coach needs more than 30 seconds and even that's a long time 30 seconds to explain the rules of the game it's too long I mean, I, I use video game language in my coaching. I talk about, I start the game off and it's a very simple game. And immediately, you know, there's just maybe two rules, that's it, play. And then I layer it up and I just say, And but I'll say to them, um, are you ready for level two? Yeah, yeah, we're ready for level two. Oh, I don't know if you are. Oh, okay, well, let's try and let's see how you get on. There's level two, new rule, boom, in we go. And so the game I wanted to start with, with all the different complexities, I get there in the end, but I start very simply and move towards it. And so, it, you know, what am I doing? Adding in rules, adding in constraints. But I start always very, very simply, uh, depending on the group, obviously, and then move up the layers and move up the levels. And they get so excited by the next level, the next level, the next level. Um wow. Uh, yeah, this is,
3: sound. Uh, I mean, again, we're violently agreeing here. Uh, and this is very much, I think, the way that often we think games are a good idea and we do induce a game with such a complex uh, set of rules that the, the players take ages to find, them, find out. But also I found along those is that uh, it's always worth coming back to the game in a couple of weeks' time because in that intervening time, Sometimes the players uh, have thought about how they might win that game. There is a moment when they're driving in the car, they're standing in the shower, that they think, "Oh, actually, I should do that. So when they play the game next time, you give it a great name. Uh, I got a, had a game called Get Out of Here, and I said, we we're going to play Get Out of Here, and the kids would race around uh, saying, great, it's get out of here. I never thought it was a particularly good game, but they loved it. So they knew what the, the rules were, so they weren't learning the rules this time round. They were playing a more complex version of the game that we first started with, and they were immediately looking for solutions. So I think the danger is that we will set up a game hoping there's going to be some emerging behaviours from that, and if they don't happen, well, don't worry about that. Let It might happen next week or the week after. There's a guy who... um. I've done some work with called Doug McClemon, who worked quite a lot with the New Zealand team and the New Zealand coaches, quite scientifically based approach that he was involved in. And he said that the All Blacks would do a line out at the start of the week because uh, in professional sport, for those who are unaware that um, things like set pieces, they, they probably spend one hour in the whole week on line outs because they just don't have enough time. Uh, do all do all the things. So they might do half an hour at the start of the week, and the players may not get the play or the move yet. By the Friday, they would be pretty much getting it. Now, have they done any extra training in between? Probably not. But what they have been doing is they've their brains have been thinking about it in that time. They've been saying, "All oh, right, okay, that's why that's why that happened." And at the most unusual moments, and then when they play, did it on the Friday, of course they're top of their game, they're, they're well-tuned athletes, they get it. So the danger is that we do try these games out. And we will know, and you will probably have games where you think, ah, oh, this is always a good game, and the, the, the players don't quite get it for that particular session. Yet, if you're patient enough, something
2: will emerge, if not exactly i think you're right what about you that i think we're quite often too quick to change um sometimes there's, there's value in the struggle going back to the to the, the mm. growth mindset concept carol, carol dweck once said a <laughs> uh, conference that i organized um she said we don't ever go home do we and say you know like honey i'm home i had the most amazing struggle today <laughs> i'm gonna value struggle um but anyway, so I think there's value in the struggle. But the other, I think the other point you make, which is which is a, a very important one, is um, that we should also—it's not always our view of what makes a good game that makes a good game. So you know, our starting point should be—you know—you you said I didn't think it was a very good game, but they loved it. Well, <laughs> that's value there, isn't it? Um, but um, exactly. I think the uh, y- y- one of the things I think um, that. I think it's worth sort of I mean, we've been going. Yeah, can you believe we've been going for an hour and five minutes? Oh, right. <laughs> but okay. Just in order to, and, and again, you know, I could violently agree with you all day. But um, in order to sort of, I guess, wrap wrap our conversation up a little bit, um, I think the, the the sort of I think the, the the point that I think we're generally making here around one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this methodology is I think it forces us to uh, stop thinking about uh, what we feel we need to impart to children, our knowledge to impart to children and start thinking about the best experience we can provide for them, that will enable them to learn the things that we, we're hoping that they're going to learn. So for me, it, it forces us to be immediately much more child responsive, player centered is the term people often use. Uh, and I think we get this win-win where we get skill, you know, it, it skill develops, I think, more effectively or could potentially develop more effectively. Uh, I, I th- there's still room for intervention, you know, um, and I'm not taking away, by the way, I'm not taking away an explicit intervention. I think sometimes you're right. If, if genuinely there is, you know, someone's going to do the equivalent of putting their hand in the fire, we've. I think we should at that point step in. So I'm not taking that off the table. I think that should be, you know, part of the mix as well. But I think it should be a very, it should be a limited thing. It's like salt, you know, should be used, not, not to be used liberally. Um, and, then, and then through that, the, the win-win of this for me is not only do we help these young people develop and explore their potential, but they're doing something that they can become immersed in and hopefully fall in love with. And therefore, we get both retention, engagement, and we get potentially improvement. So for me, that's why I'm so passionate about this approach.
3: Yeah, I think I'm passionate about it as well, as you can tell. And I think from the conversation we've had today, I've learned a couple of things which I think builds on some of the ideas. And the the key really is not just the experience, as you said, uh, and creating that environment where they they love being there and they, they want to learn. It's just knowing that moment to step in and say, touch every rung on the monkey bar and for them not to say oh dad you've spoiled it
2: (laughs) exactly yeah yeah absolutely right
3: and we adults adults spoil play oh dear when the whistle goes right we're starting training how many times even when uh in the olden days when i used to play rugby and you'd be playing touch before the uh, the coach would say right we got to start training and the players Mm -hmm. oh really so i think uh they're dangerous we we sometimes spoil play rather than make it make it yes funner, funner. i think you did did you not use a word uh on yeah. the podcast with nick which was something like funny uh, uh yeah. or something like that funnest, you made the funniest thing but... you can
1: do yeah
3: yeah the funnest there we are
2: right um Hey, Dan, I've, I've absolutely, I mean, can't think of a better way to do a to, to have a Saturday morning. Um, I, you know, I've had a really, really good conversation and I, I've learned a lot through speaking to you. Um, and, you know, that that's for me, again, comes back to the starting point around the best way for, for coaches to learn, I think, is through dialogue and ongoing conversation. So uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for you, for your time in, in contributing. I would be remiss if I didn't, um, let people know how they can find out, uh, well, find you and find out more about what you're putting out on, uh, uh, on uh, Rugby Coach Weekly and, and any other sources they, they might be able to find out more from you from.
3: Um, well, uh, they can follow me on Twitter, obviously, and uh, just uh, type rugbycoachweekly.net into there or rugbycoachweekly. I mean, if we're not near the top of the Google rankings, something's something's gone wrong. Uh, but that's uh, the key. The key also with all these things, actually, is that there's a great coaching community out there who are wanting to learn. And we're just one of those who are there. And we are constantly trying to evolve as a learning tool because I think coaches are evolving. And as you said right at the start, Stu, is don't don't we wish we had all this information back? Well, for me, when I started my coaching journey properly in 1994, when I started it and there was so little out there. There were some great people coaching and sharing stuff. Uh, It's so much changed. So it's just brilliant to be part of that community. And I've learned a lot from today. And I just, I love the fact that you and many others are sharing and opening up these doors and opening up the minds and also making me uncertain. Hence why I asked the question, I suppose in the first place. So, Yes, I've uh, I've enjoyed my struggle
2: this morning. <laughs> so have I. So have I. What a great way to finish, uh, Dan. Really appreciate your yeah. time. Thanks very much. Okay. Cheers.